Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1 today is where we'll start. Lord, I ask that you would, as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and you would open our eyes to see the truth, open our minds to understand it, open our hearts to receive and believe and be transformed by it. God, be glorified amongst us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And some of you right now are thinking, are we really going to read this whole list of genealogies? No, we're not, but continuing in verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let's jump ahead actually now to verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation uh, to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in a way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Can we all say that together? God with us. One, two, three. God with us. What a beautiful and powerful, profound truth. We open the book of Matthew, and we see Matthew writing the account of the genealogies of Jesus from Abraham to David, David to Babylonian captivity, and the Babylonian captivity until Jesus Christ, and he highlights 14 generations in between each, and I don't have time to dig into that, and I so want to, but we don't have time to, but he's showing all these readers, all these listeners That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the answer of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the fulfillment and the answer of the Davidic covenant. He is the fulfillment and the answer of the promises that were given through the prophet Jeremiah 
to Judah in Babylonian captivity, that Jesus Christ's coming, born in the flesh, came to save his people from their sins and manifest among us as God with us. Have you guys ever seen that show called Undercover Boss? You ever seen that show? If you haven't, it's a television show where what they'll do is they will find a CEO, a president, a top dog of some corporate company, and they will put on a disguise. They'll do all the makeup and the prosthetics sometimes. Actually, usually they don't go that far. Their, their disguises are pretty lame, in my opinion. Uh, they'll glue on a beard, mustache, whatever. I saw one where this guy had on a wig, and it's like, we all know that's a wig, uh, and so what they do is they disguise them to try and put them with their employees undercover so they can watch them and interact with them. And it's a fun thing to watch because this CEO who's top dog is sitting there working amongst and being trained by someone who's way down the totem pole. And they get to see the inner workings of how things are going when the CEO is not present and unveiled as the CEO, but that their identity is hidden. And there's two things that happen in this show. The CEO will be working with someone, and what most often happens is the story of like, person who's come into hard times and they've been through some struggles and this has happened in their home or in their family. I saw one where the guy, his wife um, was battling cancer and the CEO's working with this person who's just given it and they're doing a wonderful job, excellent customer service, doing so great that the CEO's going, yeah, I'm thankful this person's in my company. And then at the end, the CEO reveals themselves and the person's like, oh, snap. And they realize that they were training and or working with the person who is not only their boss, but the boss of their boss's boss's boss, probably. Recognizing I was working with, I was present with the top dog who has the authority, the ability, and the resources to have massive implications on my life. And when it's the story of that person on this side who's a hard worker, who's been through hardship, that CEO almost always in every episode's like, hey, I know your wife had cancer and she can't, you guys can't afford this surgery. I'm going to pay for the surgery. And that person begins weeping over the generosity and the provision of that high up boss. There's another side though. There's sometimes you watch that show and there's people who the CEO comes in to work with them and train under them and they're terrible. Like they have terrible customer service. They don't follow the procedures and systems, the standard operating procedures, all that kind of stuff. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They do it the wrong way. They do it with bad attitudes, all of that. And the CEO sitting there going, this is not okay. This cannot represent my company. This cannot be the kind of service and or product that we offer and then you see the same thing happen where they sit down with the CEO. The CEO reveals themselves and they're going, oh, snap. Internally, maybe they say some other words, but we won't go there. And they sit there across from the CEO and the CEO rails into them. You did this. You treated that customer this way. You, cre you worked on the product like this. That is unacceptable. You are fired. And it's entertaining to watch both. 
to realize and to witness what happens to these people when they recognize that this whole time they were close to and working with and being themselves amongst this highest authority in their organization. And we see in Matthew chapter 1, the fulfillment of the prophecy that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now you're thinking, Stephen, in our reading plan this last week, we were in Hebrews, not in Matthew. Okay, yeah, let's hop there real quick. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Because similarly to what we just said earlier as we were singing, O come, let us adore him. Sometimes we've heard these stories so much. Every year, year after year, we see the nativities everywhere and we sing the Christmas carols and we have the traditional services and we have all this stuff and we can save the true statements that we should let be in our heart. Let, let's keep Christ in Christmas and he is the reason for the season. But it can still become cliche. And we can forget God with us it's more massive than anything that's ever happened in your life. God with you, and beyond that, as the Christian, as the born-again child of God, where the Holy Spirit comes in, God in you is massive. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 here, the author of Hebrews, which is a mystery. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, and there's lots of debate there. Um, uh, uh, Origen himself said, only God knows, and I'm comfortable with that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God with us. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hearkening back to two weeks ago, Pastor Spencer took us through the book of Colossians in a one-week sermon teaching through those four chapters of Colossians. And, and you might, with that being fresh on your memory, Catch that this opening chapter sounds a whole lot like what he read in Colossians chapter 1, talking about Jesus being preeminent, that he is preeminent, preeminent meaning supreme, preeminent meaning nothing higher, nothing greater. That there is no thing, no one, no force, no nothing, no one that exists that is higher than him or greater than him. Listen, Jesus is not our homeboy. He's not our homeboy. That doesn't mean he's not our friend. Scripture teaches that he is our friend. That doesn't mean he's not our loving father. Scripture clearly and plainly teaches and preaches to us that beautiful truth that he is our father. But one of the weaknesses, especially of modern Western uh, contemporary evangelicalism, is far too low a view 
of God. He's not our homeboy. He's not just a good teacher. He's not some moral philosopher. He's not just a historical figure. He is the preeminent being of all time. In fact, he created time. He is the son of God, the Lord of all, meaning he's in charge. God in the flesh, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. Functional in the creation of the universe, present in the sustaining and upholding of the universe. We need a high view of God. And that flaw, that weakness of a low view of God can be detrimental in our lives in the way that we respond to him. And the way that we worship him, and the way that we do or don't serve him, and the way that we choose to follow or not follow him, however high our view of God is, it could be and should be higher. Like think, however high you think God is, however awesome, however powerful, however wonderful, however beautiful, however majestic you think he is, he's more. And that is because our minds are finite and limited. But as much as we avail ourselves to the word of God, it continues to re, uh, renew our minds and teach us more and more and show us more and more how great, how powerful, how wonderful he is to the extent that the only reason this marble that's floating around in space isn't drifting off into oblivion to all of our destruction is because he's upholding it as is right now. How could it be spinning and going through the universe and all this kind of stuff and, and, and us not be flying off of it because he's making it work that way? How could gravity keep us here? How could everything, every natural law, every physics law, every scientific law that works in the world and in the universe, how could it work as so? Because he's causing it to. He's sustaining it and upholding it right now every moment. Every atom in creation is humbled to his power. We need a high view of God that gives us a genuine fear of God. And with a proper fear of God, we look at his grace and are overwhelmed with gratitude. See, if your view of God is low, where he's casually our homeboy. If your view of God is low then the grace of God to you will be cute. It'll be cute. It'll be something, it's like a nice gesture. The grace of God to you, if your view is, is not high of God and, and how holy he is and how righteous he is, if your view is too low, you'll look at his grace like somebody just like opening a door for you at a restaurant where you're like, oh, thanks, you didn't have to do that. And it's not something that you're like, oh, oh my goodness. I can't believe you did that for me. Be thinking that's a little weird at the restaurant, right? Like you should respond that way next time somebody opens the door for you and see what happens. <laughs> Make for an interesting Monday, right? Or what if you're the person? Why is it that we can respond to God's grace? That we can sing the Lamb of God in my place. Your blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death that you died, and I've been raised to life. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God. How can we sing that 
and not just be weak in the knees. Because sometimes we forget the magnitude and the gravity of God with us. We can forget the weight of who he is. We can have far too low of a view, but when you realize and see the truth of how high he is, how preeminent he is, how powerful he is, all of that, and you recognize that that God who is so holy, he can have nothing to do with sin and uncleanliness, that he chose to pay for it so he could bring us back to him while we were yet sinners, it buckles your knees. And changes the posture of your heart. We need a high view of God. And like I think, I think he's so massively powerful and so perfectly holy and so immeasurably good. But I can acknowledge that my framework for those adjectives about God, my framework for all those descriptors, don't have space to fit in the extent to which they are true about him. Does that make sense? Like my mind, I can go peek it out and recognize that it's still not enough to capture and understand and communicate how much more he is than what I think he is. Have you ever watched a consummate professional, like an expert, do their thing? Remember last year when the Ryder Cup came to town, and I remember I was blessed. I, I got to go to that event one day, and it was so fun, so awesome, seeing the U.S. golf team battle it out against the European golf team, all the, the national pride, all the, the fans chanting and screaming and shouting, and, and watching the best of the best of the best in the world take their little metal sticks and hit that little white ball in a way that as a golfer makes me just go, how do they do that? <laughs> because mine goes like that. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, you know. I'm going to hit a good shot here and there, uh, 10 times around maybe. But watching these guys, and I remember that day, it was towards the latter half of the day, and we were out there, uh, Gino was with me, and we were on hole 10. We had watched some rounds. We watched everybody tee off on one, and then we went ahead to hole six and let the group catch up and watch them play there. And then we ran ahead to hole 10 to watch the group come up there and watch them again. And so we got to hole 10, and um, they were taking turns, alternate shot. And so Dustin Johnson hits this shot way off down into uh, the below, below the left of the green. And I'm talking about where when Colin Morikawa, his partner, got down to where the ball is, and he's standing at the ball, he's at a dress, and he looks up to the green in the pen, and it's like 15 feet above his head probably. And he's down there in the fescue, the thick, tall grass, and me and Gino were looking at each other like, <laughs> that'd be like, I don't know, five shots for me to get back up to a, a safe spot. And we're like watching this and we're up above the green. And so we're looking down at the green and we're looking at him where we can only see like this much of him below the green. And he's looking and he's kind of like jumping up to see the flag and he's got his glove and he's sitting here and we're going, this is going to be interesting. And he swings and he does this flop shot where the ball goes up like 30 feet in the air, comes almost straight down and rolls to inches of the cup. 
to where if you're a golfer, you're going, whoa. To the fact that I look at Gino, and Gino looks at me, I'm not kidding, tears in his eyes. <laughs> My friend starts almost crying, tears welling up, and he said, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> Why? Because when you see with your own eyes and perceive something that is just a level beyond anything else you've ever witnessed, it stirs awe and wonder in your heart. Jesus, the preeminent one, makes such a beautiful little silly moment look like just that. That the highest skill and precision and, and life's dedication of profound execution in that moment next to the glory of Jesus Christ and who he is looks cute and silly. Jesus is higher, greater than we can imagine. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, meaning all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, all at once. He's not some lowly de deity, some petty savior saying, please follow me, guys. He's preeminent. He looks down on his creation and says, mine, 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 mine. He's overall upholding all, sustaining all, and the gap between his power and authority and the next in line is a massive chasm. No one higher, no one greater. In fact, this is much of the theme of the book of Hebrews, the profound truth that Jesus is better. Jesus is better throughout the book of Hebrews. Better than who? Better than what? I'm so glad you asked. In the early chapters of Hebrews, we see right there in chapter one where we just read that he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law of Moses. He's better than the Old Testament high priests. He's better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He's better than anyone and anything. You want to sum up the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Here you go. It's Jesus is greater than fill in the blank. That's it. I don't care what you want to put up there, and you have to recognize Hebrews was written to people who their whole life has been follow the law, be circumcised, obey the kosher eating laws, observe the festivals, do everything perfectly, offer your sacrifices every year, and that's how you're blessed by God. And Jesus comes in and pays it all as the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling the law and showing all of these people in the book of Hebrews that he's better than all of it. And so all these people who are sitting here reading all the Old Testament or hearing it orally repeated to them over and over, and they sit here thinking about, oh man, wow, the angels, what it would be like, how amazing for them to speak to you with their heavenly authority. Oh, it'd be baffling. And I, man, if an angel appeared to me, like right now, if an angel appeared in this room and said to us something, we would be like, whoa. And whatever that angel said, we would probably do. Right? And the book of Hebrews is the author of Hebrews saying, hey, angels are great, 
but Jesus is greater. Hey, yeah, those, those Old Testament prophets, man, they were obedient to declare the, the promises of God and declare the word of God and call people back to faithfulness of, in, to God and, and to repentance. But those prophets, yeah, there's a better prophet. His name's Jesus, the eternal mouthpiece of God. Yeah, those priests, they had a very special work of the, the lineage of Aaron and, and Levi serving in the house of God, in the temple, in the tabernacle, doing these sacrifices and offering a payment for atonement for sin. But there is a better high priest forever who doesn't die, who has eternally existed today on your behalf and my behalf is right now talking to the Father, interceding for us, saying, Father, forgive them. I paid for that sin. He's a better priest than they were. Those sacrifices that they would bring every single year, bulls and goats and other animals, where they would have to shed blood because Hebrew tells us, uh, echoing Leviticus, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. These sacrifices were offered, and Hebrews tells us that even as they offered those sacrifices on the altar, they would sit there looking at their animal being offered up to the Lord. And they would leave with a, a degree of peace knowing, okay, I did it and we're covered for the year. We paid our price, but next year we're going to have to do it again. This burden of feeling like we have to keep paying and Jesus comes along as the true and better sacrifice offering his perfect sinless blood so that there therefore no longer remains a need for a sacrifice. Why? Because he's better. He's better in every way, fill in the blank, whatever you think is important or powerful or meaningful or true or necessary, he's better. Hebrews argues that since Jesus is better than the angels and prophets and priests in any other powerful role, we must heed what we have heard in relationship to him. Just like if those people recognized they were working with the CEO. Some of them, it might have affected the way that they worked. The ones who were genuine and true and sincere, hopefully, it would have been the same. And those who were terrible and unfaithful probably would have affected the way that they worked. But here is the beauty in why Jesus is better. Because imagine if you watch that show and you see the terrible employee, like imagine the worst of the worst and that CEO is working with them, and then they sit down, and the CEO is no longer in their costume where their identity is hidden. And that CEO says, you did this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and all of this is unacceptable. And that person sitting there with their knees knocking, shaking, trembling in fear because they know the authority, the power, the one with resources and authority to have implications on their life knows the things that they did wrong and they're thinking I'm on the chopping block. And then that CEO says, I want to bring you into my family. And all of the wealth and resources that I have, I'm going to make available to you. And those debts that you have and the problems that you have and the relational issues you have and even the sickness inside of you, I'm going to pay for it all. I'm going to bring you into my family and I'm going to love you and I'm going to lavish my love and my grace 
upon you, and I'm going to give you everything that you don't deserve. How would that person respond? Tears. And I think there's a degree of tears of gratitude for the person who was faithful and did well. But to the one who knows they were unfaithful and did not do well, and that the CEO saw it all, it makes me think about a chapter in Hebrews where it says that all things are naked before his eyes. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and it reveals the thoughts and intents of our heart. And that the Lord sees those thoughts and intents of our hearts, and that even when we're really good at being really good, which by the grace of God is hopefully more and more and more, that those moments where our thoughts and intents are not good, the CEO sees it. Yet he doesn't condemn but in his love and in his grace and in his mercy goes, you know what, you deserve condemnation. But because I am rich in love, because I'm full of mercy, I think I'll just call you mine. And I'll forgive the things I saw you do and I will pardon them. I have my son who is my heir. He will pay for the damages. And I want you in my family. And I want to love you. And if you can't step back from Hebrews and see the ways in which Jesus is better, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Hebrews is full of warnings to heed and to pay attention and respond rightly to the truth of who God is and what he has said. Hebrews 2.1 is a picture of what is sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews in this way. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Saying if we listen to angels, if we listened to prophets, if we listened to rabbis or priests or whomever, we really need to listen to him, the preeminent Jesus Christ, lest we drift. It makes me think of a C.S. Lewis quote you've heard me quote a few times. I'll put it up one more. C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If this is true, and if he is truly preeminent, if he is upholding and sustaining all things, if sin is bad enough that he truly did have to go offer himself as a sacrifice, dying on the cross, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, if all of that is true, <laughs> it is of infinite importance. If it's false, it's of no importance. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live it up. C.S. Lewis masterfully pointing out, the only thing it cannot be is moderately true or moderately important. If it's true, it cannot, we cannot respond to these truths with moderation. 
We cannot respond to the truth of who God is and what he has done in sending his son, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, taking on flesh for us and dying for our sins and respond with, oh, thanks for getting the door for me. But to respond with full devotion, full, unguarded, unrelented surrender to him. Hebrews is a letter that is rife with warnings about drifting and it's full of calls to endure hardship and persevere in suffering and to remain faithful because of who we're talking about, Jesus Christ. That we're to be faithful like those of old who had an eternal perspective that gave them faith in an eventual Messiah to come. Flip over to chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 what has been called the Hall of Faith, not Cleveland Hall of Fame, but Hebrews Hall of Faith, where all the Old Testament patriarchs and heroes of the faith are listed there, albeit they are all flawed. Why? Because the goal was that we would not look back at them and worship them and have awe over them, but that we would see their flaws and recognize that there is someone better coming. And they all knew it and they all sensed it. And by faith in the Messiah that would come, they lived appropriately. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commanded as having, or commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, a picture of being saved because you believed in the word of God and obeyed him. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Check this, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. I'm gonna skip ahead for time's sake, verse 13. These all died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired, hey, a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And he goes on to talk about more and more and more and more of these patriarchs. I'm going to jump ahead now to verse uh, 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and, and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire and the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And we're going, oh, this is awesome. And he says, and, and some were tortured. Wait, what? Refusing to accept release so they, had, they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Ouch. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Notice the better that is awaiting, was awaiting for us was being made perfect or righteous before God. I'll go on. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author or the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews is a letter that calls us back out of moderated Christianity. He says, set aside every sin and every weight that so easily besets us. Those things that slow us down in our enduring race pursuing Jesus Christ, cast them off. If your view of sin is moderate, Hebrews punches you in the gut with a don't you dare trample the blood of Christ underfoot and call it a common thing. There's no moderation there. If your view of the grace of God is moderate, where you wonder if God could really forgive you, Hebrews preaches an immoderate payment for sin, the spotless, perfect, and priceless blood of Christ, whereby we come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive help from him. There is no moderation there. If your view of the church and Christ-centered fellowship is moderate, where you don't prioritize community, community with the body of Christ, where you think you can do it on your own, you're tough enough, you know enough, just you and Jesus, Hebrews preaches, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. There's no moderation there. If you have a moderate view of Scripture, where you see it as inspiring writings, but, you know, take what you want and leave what you want. I don't want that stuff that makes me uncomfortable. 
Hebrews preaches us that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There's no moderation there. If you have a moderate view of Jesus Christ, hopefully everything I've said so far has helped you see the preeminent supremacy of Jesus Christ to recognize there is no moderation in who he is and what he brings to the table. There is no moderation and we are to treat him not as if he's just another person or even some demigod, but as if he is supreme, as if he's preeminent, as if he's God, as if he's holy, as if he's worthy, as if every atom in existence actually exists for his glory. See, I could sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and say, come on, guys, be better. Do better. Try harder. Or I could say, look at him. Look at Jesus. Do you see how worthy he is and therefore how unworthy everything else is? Everything else that says live for me, pursue me, desire me, chase after me is so unworthy when held up next to the preeminent one of the universe. Do you see how beautiful he is, how good he is, how faithful he is, how merciful he is, how gracious, and how near he is? Hebrews gives us a preeminent God who pays for sin that we might come close. He invites us to come close. And in light of that, Jesus is worthy of our best and all the rest. Not only our best, not only what we could bring to the table that we feel like, okay, I've given him my best and now this is my stuff. No, he's worthy of all of it. Everything we have, it's like what we said from Philippians where Paul said, man, to live is Christ. If I'm alive, I live for him and my life is devoted to him. So how do we respond? We respond by abandoning all aspects of moderation towards God. We want to live lives of full surrender, full devotion, full prioritizing of him, full centralizing our lives around him, full affections pouring out upon him, fully sacrificial living, fully missional living where we recognize we're here now for his purposes, fully eternally minded, no half-hearted, if there's time, okay, or if I have enough energy, or if the family doesn't have something going on, or if my favorite show isn't on that night, or if the Packer game isn't on, the supreme God of the universe willingly, willingly manifested himself as Emmanuel, God with us. The perfect one came down to the muck and mire of our sinful fallen world. He sat in the stink of our pit of sin. He stepped in the line of fire when we were destined for the firing squad. Moderation 
is not an option. Rather, it sinks into our hearts to where we genuinely say, oh, come, let us adore him. Lord, I ask today that you would let us respond to the greatness of who you are and the magnitude of what you have accomplished that we would not respond in moderation, trying to convince ourselves that we can be casual in relationship to you, but that we would respond appropriately, not withholding anything from you, but surrendering all to you. And that would come out of of a place in our hearts where we have genuinely adored you, being grateful to you, as we behold who you are and revel in what you have done, Lord, let it change our hearts and therefore change the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen.